Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Michael Walker. Tonight, we are talking about Justin Welby having a go at the government over their pretty disgusting migration plans. We're talking about another cock-up or conspiracy from the Metropolitan Police, depending on how you look at it. You can decide your explanation. Um, and we are talking about what was definitely, I think, a cock-up from James O'Brien. He was left looking a little bit silly, um, having a go at left-wingers on line. Um, I'm joined by Barnaby Rain from New York. Thank you for joining us. One story we're not going to be covering tonight is all the Republicans who are either getting arrested or getting found liable for things such as sexual abuse. Can you, can I get a brief word from you on sort of Donald Trump and George Santos? Do these things, do these things matter to the Republicans? Are they sort of really worried about this? I tell you, the thing I'm most scared about in America right now in the presidential election is that one of the Republican frontrunners who's the man heralded as the anti-Trump candidate, Ron DeSantis, uh, was a former torturer or helped torturers at Guantanamo Bay. I think that tells you everything you know about modern American politics, that you've got a torturer, uh, a guy who paid hush money um, uh, uh, to stop his sex life coming out, uh, and a guy who makes up facts. And these are the elite of uh, the American political establishment in a declining imperial hegemon. Barnaby, you know why I love you having ha having you on the show? We're, we're only a minute in. I didn't know that. Ron DeSantis worked at Guantanamo Bay. Wow. Um, maybe I should have known that, but Barnaby, thank you for uh, filling me in. The government's illegal migration bill has today been debated in the House of Lords, where peers queued up to bash it. One of those was the Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, who said this. Currently, 80% of refugees are still in the global south protected by the poorest countries in the world. Of course, we cannot take everyone, and nor should we. But this bill has no sense at all of the long-term and of the global nature of the challenge that the world faces. It ignores the reality that migration must be engaged with at source, as well as in the channel as if we, as a country, were unrelated to the rest of the world. It is a siloed bill, not a whole-of-government bill. It does not draw in conflict <coughs> management and prevention, which drives migration. It does not draw in climate impacts, which drive migration and conflict. It is isolationist. It is morally unacceptable and politically impractical to let the poorest countries deal with the crisis alone and cut our international aid. My Lords, this bill is an attempt at a short-term fix. It risks great damage to the UK's interests and reputation at home and abroad, let alone the interests of those in need of protection or the nations who together face this challenge. Our interests as a nation are closely linked to our reputation for justice and the rule of law, and to our measured language, calm decision, and careful legislation. None of those are seen here. The Lords aren't likely to throw out the bill. It was in the Tory manifesto, but they can make amendments to try and water down its worst effects. Um, that's exactly what Home Secretary Suella Bravman doesn't want to happen. Writing in the Times with Justice Secretary Alex Chalk, she issued this warning to the Second Chamber. It is entirely right that the Lords should scrutinise this important piece of legislation that is the purpose of Parliament's Second Chamber. At the same time, it must be balanced against the clear desire of the British people to control immigration. 
This was a government manifesto commitment in 2019 with a pledge to take back control of our borders. And yet illegal migration is out of control. It is also intolerably fair on tax, intolerably unfair, sorry, on taxpayers, on would-be immigrants who do the right thing and play by the rules, on people who see accommodation and public services put under unbearable pressure, and on those sold a dangerous lie by wicked people smugglers. For our country to be truly sovereign, we must be able to decide who can enter our territory. The British people understand this in no uncertain terms. So sort of uh, the, the usual unpleasantness we would expect from our Home Secretary and the new Justice Secretary, of course, replacing Dominic Raab. Um, the illegal immigration bill is aimed at tackling what the government is calling illegal migration, essentially people arriving in the UK without prior permission in order to claim asylum. And their focus has been on the most headline-grabbing kind. That's arrivals by small boat. It's very visible, and you can get people very angry about it. However, some more potentially thoughtful people on the political right, so different politics, but they, they seem to be able to see the wood from the trees, are beginning to see a contradiction in the Tories' immigration policies. That's because while they grab headlines by bashing so-called illegal migration, the government is overseeing the highest net migration figures ever recorded, and by quite a long way. Calculations from the right-wing Centre for Policy Studies shows that net migration, that's the number of people arriving here minus those leaving, is likely to have been at least 700,000 in 2022. That's double the last high of 331,000. That was set eight years ago. Now, part of that can be explained by Ukrainian refugees. 210,000 visas have been issued since the Russian invasion. But most new arrivals are coming for economic reasons. Robert Colville is the director of the Centre for Policy Studies, and he wrote this in The Times. The main driver of increased immigration is a huge post-pandemic surge in the numbers arriving to work and study, which rose from 239,000 and 435,000 in 2021 to 423,000 and 626,000 in 2022. Both are record highs by a very long way. He goes on to say this. What has also changed is where these arrivals are coming from. Over the past couple of years, migration from the EU has been basically flat, but migration from outside it has soared. And as Neil O'Brien pointed out before he became a Tory minister, there has been a shift within that non-EU category towards South Asia and Nigeria. Since 2019, work visas for Indians have doubled and student visas have quadrupled. India now tops the table for work visas, student visas, and other visitor visas. This shift is also apparent in the job market. Since the start of 2021, the number of PAYE jobs filled by EU workers has remained flat at 2.5 million, yet the number filled by non-EU workers has risen from just over 2 million to almost 3 million. In London, where 37% of the population now were born outside the UK, the number of payroll employees grew by 152,000 between December 2021 and 2022, but only 40,000 of those were from the UK. A full 120,000 came from outside the EU, and the number of EU workers actually shrank by 8,000. So those are big numbers. We're gonna, I'm not worried about them, but we will talk about what they mean politically in a moment. Um, the Telegraph attempt to lay out what they believe explains this increase. So they say the rise has been fueled by a more liberal approach to post-Brexit immigration undertaken whilst Boris Johnson was prime minister. That saw his points system open up half of all jobs in the UK to foreign workers by lowering salary and skilled thresholds for migrants and lifting the cap. The new foreign graduate visa that allows students to stay in the UK for two years after completing their degree has seen overseas student numbers jump by more than two-thirds from 286,000 to a record 492,000 last year. Um, so, according to the Telegraph, and I think it seems 
pretty plausible. The increase in net migration to 700,000, that's what's currently being estimated, was down to an active policy choice. But the Tories are also pretending that 45,000 people arriving irregularly, that's just 6% of the total, constitutes a national emergency. Now, I'm personally very much in favour of Britain welcoming refugees and people who come here to work and study. I think it makes our country richer. I think it's the right thing to do. But it does seem odd that you've got a government that's saying there is this national emergency. We have to stop illegal migration because it's this huge strain on services when you're talking about 45,000 people. And at the same time, you've got active policy, which is sort of increasing net migration to the highest figure it's ever been. Um, Barnaby, what do you make of this? Is, is, is there a contradiction here? You've got a Conservative Party, which is really trying to push migration up the political agenda, saying, let's all have this huge panic about migration. And then at the same time, increasing net migration to the highest it's it's ever been. It's sort of, it's, I mean, it's interesting at least. Well, what do you make of it? I think there's a contradiction at the heart of the right's Brexit project. They wanted Brexit, right-wing ideologues, whether it's Nigel Farage or Jacob Rees-Mogg, or indeed the Institute of Economic Ideas and, and some of the people around Liz Truss. They wanted Brexit because they hoped it would remove a set of regulations imposed by the EU uh, on the British economy, uh, like uh, standards for workers, standards for health and safety. And so it would turn us into what they sometimes called a Singapore on Thames. They wrote a book called Britannia Unchained, uh, some of the people central to Liz Truss's administration. And they wanted a kind of free market, Texan-style paradise. Uh, and in that view, businesses would be able to hire uh, whichever worker they could pay the least money to, um, uh, free of any uh, need to maintain the health and safety of those workers. Um, and so they'd be able to profit and profits would soar even further through the roof than they already are at record levels in Britain today. It was a project to raise the profit rate. That required low wage labor. And so many of those people are quite relaxed in truth about migration. In fact, they want to do free trade deals with countries like India. They're now in the eighth stage of the process of negotiating a free trade agreement with India. And what's India's central demand? Visas for Indian students and Indian workers. Um, many of the countries around the world that they wanted to open up to as global Britain, uh, Empire 2.0, uh, wanted to send their workers to Britain uh, to make better wages than they could at home. Many of the libertarians, right-wing libertarians behind Brexit were okay with that. But in order to assemble an electoral block to make Brexit possible, in order to win the vote, they allied with a, a right-wing nationalist tendency uh, which hated migrants. In fact, many of these right-wingers have themselves affected to hate migrants for many years uh, in order to, uh, to find a base for their kind of class politics. Nigel Farage once, uh, when asked about Milton Friedman's support for immigration, the right-wing economist said, well, actually, Milton Friedman said, you can't have free immigration if you've got a welfare state because you can't have people coming to take your benefits. So that's a convenient right-wing answer for them. We've got to get rid of benefits and migrants all at once. Um, so there is a contradiction at the heart of that Brexit project, a global Britain which involved buccaneering capitalists getting low wages from migrants from all over the world. Um, uh, and uh, it, uh, the, the support for that project, how do they square the circle? By picking on uh, that small number of the most easily picked on, easily abused migrants, refugees. Then they pretend they're not even attacking refugees, but people smugglers. Of course, the people smugglers and the British Home Office are utterly codependent. They need each other. The British Home Office gives them a business model by shutting down safe and legal routes for everyone except a small number of Ukrainians and people from Hong Kong and just a few Afghans. The vast majority of refugees from around the world don't have a safe and legal route to get to Britain. They need to get onto very dangerous boats in order to escape war 
war and torture and starvation. Uh, and Britain then says it's the people smugglers who put them on those boats who are to blame, but the British state forced them into that option by not giving them another choice. So it's disingenuous when they say it's the people smugglers who are responsible. It's disingenuous when they say they don't even like migration. The truth is it's all a politics that is about uh, restoring and, and, and retaining and increasing profit rates uh, for the bosses who donate to them and who are their friends. In fact, though, capitalism requires immigration controls, uh, or at least in, in since the 20th century, it has prospered through immigration controls. Why? Well, firstly, because capital can move around the world freely while keeping workers in low-wage regions imprisoned and unable to move, uh, so that uh, you can move a factory from Texas to Mexico and know that, um, or from Britain to India, and know that those workers are stuck in that low-wage region and can't get out. Secondly, because uh, immigration controls and the network of state violence that surrounds them means that a section of the working class is able to be hyper-exploited in, in, uh, because they, they can't get them in minimum wage and so on, because they're undocumented, they're illegal, um, and others who are subject to racism and persecution are pushed into the lowest wage jobs um, uh, and forced to stay there or into higher rates of unemployment. Um, and then thirdly, because uh, uh, immigration controls and the regressive and xenophobic politics around them uh, functions to get workers to be loyal in a kind of vertical unity, to be loyal to their bosses in an image of the nation state against these immigrant arrivals, uh, forgetting that the real enemy tends to arrive not by migrant dinghy, but by private jet. So immigration controls sustain capitalist inequalities. Uh, but in fact, capitalist business requires lots of low-wage labor from all over the world. Uh, the Brexit project involves actually more of that low-wage labor from all over the world in free trade agreements with countries like India. And so they'll just beat up on the very most desperate migrants in order to assemble an economic, uh, an electoral block for their reactionary politics. Astute analysis of the Brexit project. So, you know, you've got this elite group, what they actually wanted was deregulation because they wanted to sort of increase profits and make production cheaper. But they actually sort of appealed to a mass proportion of the population by saying this was an anti-migrant project. There was a contradiction there. And now we're seeing the result of that. I suppose I want to maybe get you to clarify a bit or because this is something I'm unsure about when I hear people say capitalism requires border controls. Is it just capitalism that requires border controls? I mean, there are communist countries that had border controls. I feel like it, it, it might be the case that in any society where you've got limited resources, which is going to be every society, frankly, until we have fully automated luxury communism and complete abundance, there will be some demand from local populations to say they want to control who's coming in and out and who gets access to those services. I mean, is it really sustainable to say that it's it's just a capitalist thing that we have borders that stop people moving from one country to, to another or at least regulate that process? Well, I think the peculiar thing about capital is that for the first time in world history, capitalism is a truly global world, a truly global system. That is to say, it's expansionary, dynamic, uh, the need to compete for more and more profit uh, makes it spread into ever greater terrains of our lives and into ever greater terrains of the world. So you have global networks of production and distribution of commodities, um, and capitalists want the free distribution of those commodities. They want to get rid of tariffs, trade barriers, um, but they also want labor not to move freely, even as we also face higher levels of movement of labor than, than, than ever in, in, in human history, um, uh, across continents at least. Um, so why do capitalists want those two things? Uh, free movement of goods and, and, and services, um, but not free movement of labor. And it's because I think it, it, it fits 
it allows them to profit by selling their goods wherever they want, while knowing that they can have low wage workers in certain parts of the world imprisoned. They're not able to move uh, and compete in that capitalist logic for higher wages elsewhere. They're imprisoning workers. It's just one of the many mechanisms by which the capitalist freedoms, uh, in fact, require unfreedoms for lots of people, uh, disciplined and controlled to allow profits to be made, uh, while also ensuring that those who do migrate, many of them are kept in insecure, inferior positions, either because they don't have legal protections, uh, because they're not citizens, uh, or, or just because they are subject to racism, which allows them to be uh, more abused at work and so on. And so the working class gets divided and stratified. And then politically, politically, it's very useful to be able to defend hierarchies by turning people against outsiders, by turning people against migrants, uh, rather than turning them against uh, those who are dominating and abusing them in a hierarchical position. So that's not to say that other kinds of societies don't also make use uh, of, um, of limits on, on free movement. But there is a particularly capitalist quality, uh, which is missed by thinking that capital is just a kind of borderless world, um, that globalization means that all walls have, have disappeared because the Berlin Wall disappeared in 1989. In fact, since then, walls have gone up all over the place, uh, uh, whether it's uh, racist walls like Donald Trump's or the Zionist state's wall in Palestine uh, to keep the indigenous off their land, or whether it's the most militarized border in the world, which is Spain's colonial border in Morocco, uh, keeping out people who try to jump and climb over it in order to get to uh, the wealth of, of, of countries that stole their wealth um, all over Africa. Um, so capital sells itself as a borderless world, and it isn't a borderless world. It's uh, the, the walls disappear for bankers uh, marching all over the world making a profit, but the walls get ever higher for uh, uh, victims of bombs and uh, destitution uh, who flee and, and seek safety. I suppose I'm just, we shouldn't spend too long on this, we've got lots of stories to cover, but I suppose I'm, I'm just unconvinced that the causal agent here is capitalism because I mean, I mean it seems to me that there is you know there's divisions within the capitalist class probably in in the uk media the biggest advocate for increased migration isn't you know the guardian it's the economist the economist is obsessed with having increased migration you know i i, I think that's a good policy but they want it because they think it's going to be beneficial to to capitalist growth and then you've got a wing of capitalism of the nigel farage kind um who to me seem to be using sort of the idea of controls on borders to try and get democratic support for their deregulatory project, as you as you pointed out before. So for me, it seems to me, I, I think I'm pro-migration, but I think it, it, it's almost too easy for the left to say it's capital that wants migration controls, because to me, it actually seems like it's people who want migration controls. And so it, 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 it seems to me that democracy and, and popular, so, you know, national populations seem more keen on migration controls than do the capitalists. So to sort of say, well, this is just a capitalist thing, to me seems a little bit too convenient, let's say. I mean, how would you respond? Well, so I think you're absolutely right that the left shouldn't just say that everything we dislike is just a capitalist plot. And I think you're absolutely right, too, that lots of people want migration controls. But it's very important that a lot of the media discourse around migration controls functions by treating it as a kind of reaction to a popular groundswell so that politicians like Nigel Farage present themselves as just listening to what people want. And that's a longstanding thing. Enoch Powell used to present himself as just listening to the mailbag that he was getting from his constituents. But in fact, there's a long record of politicians whipping up this kind of sentiment because it provides them with an easy kind of attack line. So if you're the Conservative Party in Britain today, here's your conundrum. There's very low support for neoliberal economics in Britain now. There's not even that much interest in the other kinds of culture wars, like attacks on trans people, that the Conservative Party wants to whip up in order to get an electoral base behind them, even though most people don't like the energy bosses and the water company bosses and the big landlords uh, to whom they are fundamentally loyal. But the biggest thing that they can do to whip 
rope up support is to talk about immigration. And that's not just a response then. It becomes a constant attempt to talk about making people believe that the problems in their lives are caused by the family next door, uh, preventing them getting a council flat because that family's just arrived from Afghanistan and gets one, rather than the fact that we haven't built council housing properly in 30 years and the right to buy policies denuding council house stock. So there's an attempt to get people to talk about this, to get people to blame immigrants in order to not talk about the other uh, real deep problems in their lives or to, to, to have false scapegoats uh, to blame for those problems. And that's an active attempt by politicians in order to uh, avoid a kind of class politics. And it's also uh, something which sections of capital need and use in order to have low wage regions of the world and have less secure workers, even as other sections of capital uh, want, of course, free board, free flowing migrants, but generally not migrant communities arriving in Britain and making a home here, but guest worker programs like those used in West Germany after World War II, which ensure that you have migrants who are, for example, kept outside trade union rights uh, so that they're more hyper-exploitable. Um, so capital is not really a friend of migrants. Politicians who talk about migrants and say they're just responding to popular concern, in fact, whip it up. Uh, these are important things for the left to understand, even as we face the reality of the fact that, yes, people are worried about these things, and we have to have good left-wing answers for, for showing people why uh, we're going to make a freer, better world for everyone, and they don't need to attack their neighbours. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I suppose, I, again, I'm not wholly, because I feel like there are some politicians who who use whipping up sort of fear of migrants as a way to get elected, and that explains their, their policy. I think there are others who, who, who uh, want to push the issue down the agenda and then end up introducing quite, you know, authoritarian migration policies anyway, because they're worried that sort of there will be a groundswell of opposition to them. So I think Joe Biden's doing that at the moment. I think New Labour is somewhat similar. You can say they're following sort of the, the message put out by the right-wing corporate press. But to me, just blaming capital seems a bit too easy. But we should move on. We could talk about this for an hour. Maybe we should one day. Now we're going to go to our next story, though. Another day and another story about shocking incompetence for the Metro... <laughs> going to start that one again. Another day and another story about shocking incompetence from the Metropolitan Police or about shocking malice. So that's depending on how you look at these things. Um, this time, it's about the Daniel Morgan affair. Now, you might remember Daniel Morgan was a private investigator who was found dead in a South London pub car park in March 1987 with an axe in his head. Um, the case was never sold and the Met has accepted that police corruption marred the investigation. Most worryingly, one theory about Morgan's death relates it to the fact that when Morgan was brutally killed, he had himself been investigating police corruption. So it doesn't look good. You might also remember that after decades of, ca of campaigning by Daniel Morgan's family, an inquiry was launched into the case in 2013. That was when Theresa May was Home Secretary. And 18 months ago, so quite recently, a report was published. However, why are we talking about this now? Because it's been revealed that the Metropolitan Police didn't make available to that inquiry all the relevant documents. It's failure after failure after failure or conspiracy after conspiracy after conspiracy. As I say, you can choose your explanation. Um, this is the Guardian headline for the story. Scotland Yard admits failing to hand over documents to Daniel Morgan inquiry. Met left dozens of documents in locked cabinet instead of passing to inquiry into its own corruption. The Guardian report that there were 95 pages of documents concerning the Morgan case, which should have been handed to the inquiry, but weren't. The Met say that the documents were first found in January, 18 months after the Morgan inquiry report was made public. This is what Daniel Morgan's family have said. No explanation has been forthcoming as to why it took the Met over four months to inform us of this development. In the circumstances, we consider we are entitled to ask whether the information has come to light only because, as we understand it, the media had already got hold of the story. 
We were informed last night by way of a letter from Assistant Commissioner Barbara Gray that these documents had been stored in a locked cabinet at New Scotland Yard following a handover between senior officers in 2014 and accessed only when the Met forced entry into this secure storage in January 2023. Um, interestingly, and awkwardly for the Met, the cabinet that contained the documents, so these documents that were not revealed, was on the seventh floor of the Met's headquarters in Whitehall. And the Guardian noted this interesting detail. The seventh floor of the Met's headquarters contains two private offices for the Met and Deputy Commissioner. It is also home to the force's leadership, which sits on its management board and works from an open plan space. Their assistants and the force chaplain also inhabit the floor. Um, so we have the case here. We have uh, the case of Daniel Morgan. The inquiry, in fact, found um, the police to, to have been corrupt, institutionally corrupt, they said, because they hadn't investigated properly. As I say, the circumstances of the death, incredibly, incredibly suspicious. This was a guy who was investigating Met Police corruption. Now, 18 months after the inquiry, it turns out, oh, whoops, uh, in, it just so happens that on the floor where all the Met leadership sit, um, there, there was a cache of documents which we forgot to hand over to the inquiry. Or I suppose they would say they didn't forget it it's because they didn't know it was there. You know, the institutional memory wasn't there, maybe. Anyway, they found them now. Um, but Barnaby, it doesn't inspire confidence, does it? No, not at all. And in 2021, there was a report into Daniel Morgan's death, uh, an investigation. The Home Office tried to delay the publication of that investigation to protect the police because the investigation found that the crime scene wasn't properly searched. The investigation found that interviews weren't properly conducted. The investigation found that suspects, get this, were warned before they were arrested, which gave them time to destroy evidence. And the investigation found that the Metropolitan Police's first concern, let me get up the exact wording, the Metropolitan Police's first objective was to protect itself. That's the investigation that the Home Office tried to delay. Now we know that almost 100 pages of documents were stored away uh, 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 so that they couldn't be accessed. Uh, it looks like they were hidden by the police in order to prevent an investigation of a private detective who may have been investigating the police. Um, uh, many, several of the suspects uh, were in that murder were police officers. So this just tells us something about the nature of this institution. We've done several segments on this show about it. The Metropolitan Police is an institution that has been repeatedly found to be institutionally corrupt. It's an institution that's been repeatedly found to be institutionally racist. It's an institution that's been repeatedly found to be institutionally sexist. It's an institution that's been repeatedly found to be institutionally Islamophobic. The evidence from the Casey report, for example, recently has been overwhelming. And what kind of institution is it? How does it react to those sorts of findings? Well, when Jean-Charles de Menezes, an innocent man, was murdered by the Metropolitan Police uh, uh, while trying to get on a train in London, the person responsible for that overall operation, Cressida Dick, wasn't arrested, she wasn't fired, she was promoted and eventually became the head of the whole institution. So this is a body that behaves as if it is above the law and receives protection from politicians of both parties in behaving as if it is above the law. We have deaths in custody, almost 40 deaths in police custody over the last six or seven years um, uh, that are rarely properly investigated and no one uh, is held accountable for them. Overwhelmingly, those are deaths of black and minority ethnic people. Um, 
The police behave like this because they know what their role is. Their role is to patrol, monitor, regulate, repress a highly uneven, stratified class and racist society. And so their job isn't really to keep us all safe. You know that when you try to call the police when you've got a burglary and it takes them ages to get there. But their real job is to discipline um, uh, uh, those who could cause trouble in that society and to protect wealth, power and privilege. And they're allowed to be as corrupt as they like. They're allowed to make as much of a mess of their work as they like um, uh, because they're close to politicians who protect them while attacking other institutions that we really need and love, like the National Health Service. Uh, the police will just get away with doing broadly whatever they want. I'm sure we could now manufacture a, a long debate about whether the only function of the police is to enforce a class society. But um, we, we, we will skip over that for now because we've got three more stories to get through. The polls suggest Labour is on course to win the most seats at the next general election, but it's plausible they won't have an absolute majority. In such an instance, Keir Starmer would have to look at making deals with other parties, and that's something he was asked directly about by Beth Rigby on Sky News. Let's take a look at his answer. You sat next to Ed Davey at the coronation on Saturday. Is it a man you can do business with? Well, look, I'm going for an outright majority, and I'm often asked, you know, will you do a deal with the SNP? And I've been absolutely clear there are no terms in which we would do a deal with the SNP. Yeah. I want to push on to a Labour majority. Mm. What about the Lib Dems? Well, look, I'm not answering hypotheticals, but, oh. you know, we, want, we are aiming for a Labour majority. Okay. And that's what we're confident about, because, you know, the cry this set of local elections was a cry for change and Labour is the party that can deliver that change. OK, so you are ruling out a deal with the SNP on any terms, but you're not ruling out a deal with the Lib Dems? Well, as you know, with the SNP, it's a fundamental difference. I do not believe no, but in the breakup and separation of the United Kingdom. I do not believe that our future will be better okay. if we put a border between Scotland and England. Okay. So it's a fun, just, there's no basis for an agreement. But just to be agreement. clear, you're ruling out any sort of arrangement with the SNP and you are not doing that with the Liberal Democrats. But I'm clear, I'm pressing on, I want a Labour majority so government, you aren't a workable majority. Because the reason I ask, Saku, is that last year you said you would not go into coalition with anyone, including the Lib Dems. You said that in an interview with Bloomberg. So you're slightly changing position. No, I've said throughout, actually from the day I took over as leader, that I want to go for a Labour majority government. Because that's the way that. we can deliver change. That's my total focus. You know, the hypotheticals about what might happen, that goes on for every yeah, but general you, election. But what, what but, I'm hearing is that you are now slightly equivocating on the Liberal Democrats because last year no. you said you wouldn't have any formal arrangement with the Liberal Democrats and you would rule out any arrangement, confidence and supply, formal, informal. And you're not, just to be really clear, it's very important, you're not saying that today. Look, I, I want a clear majority Labour government. Again, you, you might watch that video. Oh, classic politician doesn't want to answer the, the question straight. Um, I think the takeaway is quite clear from that, though. Labour are saying they wouldn't form a coalition with the SNP. They're saying that because they're expecting an attack line from the Conservatives that say vote Labour, get SNP and get an independence referendum or whatever. But he doesn't think it's electorally toxic to say, yep, if I am in a minority government, I might join up with the Lib Dems to form a coalition. He clearly thinks that the, the voters Labour are aiming for are not going to be terrified by the prospect of a Labour Lib Dem government. Um, Barnaby, what's your interpretation of this? I suppose not so much your interpretation, because I think it's obvious what, what he's saying. But I mean, how would you feel, let's say, about a Labour Lib Dem government? 
Well, for a start, I think it's an electoral miscalculation. Uh, the Conservative Party has, for a while now, presented themselves as the force of stability in British politics, and that's been their central defence when they don't have much to sell. They don't actually have much to offer people. So in 2015, David Cameron said it was a choice between him and a coalition of chaos. In fact, that's not a new line. Stanley Baldwin in the 1920s, uh, his electoral tagline for the Conservative Party was safety first. Uh, if you are the party of a ruling class that don't have much to offer people, you can at least offer some kind of stability. And so the idea that the Labour Party can only get into office by a ragbag coalition that involves uh, buying and selling favours after an election with other forces, of course, the only time that's happened recently in British history was actually David Cameron and Nick Clegg. But the idea that the Labour Party, uh, which isn't uh, trained on the playing fields of Eton, aren't born to rule, uh, can only get into power by a, by a ramshackle operation, uh, has long been the kind of ideological uh, centrepiece of conservative attack. So I think it's foolish um, uh, uh, to, to suggest uh, on Starmer's part now that he's going to think about a coalition. Why then would he do it? Because he knows it's foolish. He knows it's foolish in the case of the SNP, and he knows also it's foolish in the case of the Liberal Democrats. Well, I think it's important to remember that Tony Blair, someone Starmer talks to regularly, uh, in the 1990s, before his enormous uh, landslide didn't make this necessary, in the 1990s, Tony Blair was talking to the Liberal Party, was talking to Paddy Ashdown, then Liberal leader, uh, and was serious about a kind of Liberal Labour deal. And he was serious about it not only for pragmatic reasons, but because he he considered, he said, the uh, liberal labor politics of the late 19th, early 20th century, a kind of model. That is to say, the politics before the emergence of an independent labor party, before a class party uh, speaking uh, a language of working people and, and of the working class, uh, a kind of much looser anti-Toryism of the progressive middle classes that the liberal party had historically represented, is something that people like Barrister Keir Starmer and Barrister Tony Blair have a soft spot for. So I think there is something about this, uh, this cozying up to the Liberal Democrats, um, which tells us something really, really fundamental to use Starmer's word. That is to say, he says he has a fundamental difference with the SNP because they have a different opinion about Britain's constitution than he does. But he doesn't have a fundamental difference with the Liberal Democrats, who are the party who instituted, helped to institute austerity, which destroyed hundreds of thousands of people's lives, consigned many disabled people uh, to enormous suffering and even premature death, uh, closed down schools and youth centres uh, and helped to cause riots. Um, uh, put a generation of people off education by raising the debt involved, um, stuck us in a low-wage, high-rent economy uh, uh, in which young people talk about not having children because they can't see much future. That's the work that the Liberal Democrats did. And Keir Starmer says he doesn't see a fundamental difference between his politics and theirs, but he does see a fundamental difference between him and someone who wants Scotland to be an independent country. So I think that tells you a lot about where Keir Starmer's coming from, even as the Liberal Democrats, who have pretty decent instincts on defending civil liberties, could actually teach Keir Starmer a good lesson or two. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, with the I'm no fan of Lib Dems. I think they're a kind of pointless party. But the the upshot or the upside, sorry, of, of a coalition government and why I wouldn't, you know, I I think it would be a pretty decent outcome actually. I mean, I I want there to be a, a Labour minority government with Jeremy Corbyn as the swing seat. I think that would be the best outcome. But uh, a Labour minority with a Lib Dem coalition agreement, which includes electoral reform, could be. I mean, one of the best outcomes, actually, from the next election, whether or not the Lib Dems would have the leverage to demand electoral reform is a different question. And they've already said they won't ally with the Conservatives. So, you know, what leverage do they have? It's not like they can say, oh, well, we'll only go with you, Labour, if you offer us this. The Tories have already offered us this. Ed Davies already said, we're not going to work with the Tories. We're against the Tories. The only people we're going to work with are, are Labour. But I suppose if, if we're being optimistic, we might say there could be a deal. Labour aren't going to be particularly left-wing anyway. They can do some sort of fairly centrist social democratic economic program 
they'll be a little bit less authoritarian than they would have otherwise been because the Lib Dems are involved. And then we might also get electoral reform on the side. I mean, it, it, do you think that's is my rosy picture of a potential future? Um, do you think it's completely deluded? I think the problem, Michael, is that the Liberal Democrats have proven themselves to be so craven that they will give up all principle in the pursuit of ministerial red boxes and chauffeur-driven cars. So uh, what did they get in return for a coalition with the Conservatives after 2010? They got a referendum on a, on a, on a mild measure of electoral reform, which wasn't even what they supported, AV. They then lost the referendum, of course. Um, and, um, uh, and they got a massive austerity program, bigger even than the Conservatives had promised in their 2010 uh, election manifesto. So, uh, and Nick Clegg later said he was kind of bullied into it by nightmare scenarios of Britain turning into austerity ridden Greece. Uh, so they just crashed the economy themselves instead. So uh, these are kind of amateurish operators who give up all their principles for power. And I think that's a shame because I agree with you. They could be a welcome kind of break on some of Keir Starmer's highly authoritarian impulses. Um, indeed, it's often the case that Labour leaders move so far to the right uh, that they are uh, outflanked on the left by liberal leaders. Uh, that was the case even in the 90s when Tony Blair promised not to raise any taxes uh, and the Liberal Party was left, the Liberal Democrats were left saying, well, actually, we've raised taxes just a little bit uh, to save our education system. Now you've got a situation where the Lib Dems are, are in kind of shock, bafflement and horror that Keir Starmer and the Labour Party say they won't repeal various tranches of repressive conservative legislation. And Ed Davey says, well, I'd repeal it, just as the Green Party says, we'd repeal it, the SNP say we'd repeal it. Um, so yes, the Liberal Democrats now outflank Labour the Labour Party sometimes on the left. Uh, but I think their desire for power is such that they, uh, they they couldn't be trusted to maintain any principles in a in a coalition agreement. But I do think the really telling thing is that Keir Starmer sees no fundamental difference between him and the party of austerity. And that tells us a lot about his politics. Now, hold your thoughts on repealing legislation, because that's going to be a big theme of our next story. The author of the modestly titled book, How to Be Right, has, again, got it wrong. James O'Brien launched into this tirade after a caller said he was disappointed that Keir Starmer wouldn't repeal the Public Order Act. Well, I have to say, I'm a little bit disappointed in Keir Starmer not saying he's going to overturn this latest bit of legislation. No, that's, that's, a mis that's unfortunately a misapprehension. I think that was a consequence of David Lammy saying something on LBC over the well, weekend. Yes, yes, I did hear him say and, that. And what happens is, I'll explain this to you because it's actually quite important and it's a mark, of course, of how far LBC has come in recent years. You have some very strange people out there who spend their days desperately trying to resurrect the ghost of Jeremy Corbyn. So David Lammy says something uh, off the cuff and out of context on LBC and one of these weirdos clips it up and puts it out as proof that the Labour Party isn't going to be repealing any of this and they're not going to be doing anything at all to um, to remove legislation that they actually voted against in the oh, first well, place. But the Labour, le the Labour have since clarified that that is, that is not the case at all. Not that it will get tweeted by all the clowns who, 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 who came across your path or, or whose path you came across over the weekend because they're too busy trying to pass electric shock therapy through the corpse of Jeremy Corbyn's political career. But hey-ho, it's up to us to, to get the truth out there. So O'Brien was wrong on a couple of counts there. First, he said left-wingers wouldn't dare share what he said. We wouldn't dare get the truth out there and, and let everyone know what James O'Brien thinks. Well, here we are, James. Um, the second is that he says it was just angry left-wingers purposefully misconstruing what David Lammy said that has led to the caller to believe that Keir Starmer wouldn't repeal the authoritarian legislation that got law-abiding protesters arrested at the coronation. Well, we will go to Sir Keir in a moment. First, let's look at the clip from David Lammy that O'Brien thinks was so irresponsibly weaponized. 
I would have one question to put to you, David. Would you be prepared as a Labour government to repeal this legislation, which is totally unnecessary, given that you agree it's unnecessary, and the other legislation this liberticide government has passed, which is attempting to control and repress our right to protest and our right to oppose legally uh, and legitimately uh, Phil, I mean, uh, look, actions by our government. This repeal question, you know, you get this a lot in politics. We can't come into office picking through all the conservative legislation and repealing. It would take up so much parliamentary time. We need a positive agenda. The primary thing is cost of living, inflation, and getting growth back into this country. Keir Starmer's been right to prioritise it. And in the last item, we were talking about the local elections. It's clear that people were voting uh, on that basis. Now, that answer might have been off the cuff, as James O'Brien said, or it might have been briefed to David Lammy by Keir Starmer and his leadership team. Starmer, sorry, Lammy is, after all, Shadow Foreign Secretary. And that was, after all, a fairly predictable question. He wasn't sort of caught off guard there. Obviously, the Labour Party have been thinking about the question, will you repeal this? James O'Brien, though, he kept the hope alive. This was just someone ad-libbing. And indeed, according to James O'Brien, it was anyone who believed David Lammy, anyone who thought he actually meant what he said, they were the cynics. Well, unfortunately for James, Keir Starmer would soon personally weigh in on the issue. Why wouldn't a Labour government repeal the Public Order Act? I mean, if Labour... I mean, the whole history of Labour is a, is a history of protest. Well, I think there are two things going on here. On the one hand, I think most people say the police need powers to deal with just stop oil and some of their tactics. They do need powers to deal with that. But on the other hand, there's a, well, the, the, there's a balance to be had, which is to protect free um, you know, and peaceful protest. Mm. Operational decisions were made over the weekend. Some were right, some were wrong. The police themselves accepted that a number of them were wrong. That needs to be a learning experience. Legislation needs to bed but down. But you won't repeal the Act? Well, I think we need to let it bed in. Yeah. We need to look at how it operates yeah. in practice. Very often with public order legislation, as you know, there's a period of bedding in. Just because the police have got a power, it doesn't yeah. mean they have to use it in every situation. Yeah. Guidance emerges. Yeah. So we haven't even got to that stage yet, and I think we need to get to that stage. So that was pretty clear, and it was from the horse's mouth. Keir Starmer won't repeal the Public Order Act, and in fact, he wants it to bed in. Now, with that context in mind, can we listen to James O'Brien one last time? Well, I have to say, I'm a little bit disappointed in Keir Starmer not saying he's going to overturn this latest bit of legislation. No, that's, that's, a mis that's unfortunately a misapprehension. I think that was a consequence of David Lammy saying something on LBC over the oh, yeah, weekend. Yes, I did hear him. And, and what happens is, I'll explain this to you because it's actually quite important and it's a mark, of course, of how far LBC has come in recent years. You have some very strange people out there who spend their days desperately trying to resurrect the ghost of Jeremy Corbyn. So David Lammy says something uh, off the cuff and out of context on LBC and one of these weirdos clips it up and puts it out as proof that the Labour oh. Party isn't going to be repealing any of this and they're not going to be doing anything at all to... Um, to remove legislation that they actually voted against in the oh, first well, place, but the Labour le the Labour have since clarified that that is that is not the case at all. Not that it will get tweeted by all the clowns who who, who, who came across your path or, or whose path you came across over the weekend, because they're too busy trying to pass electric shock therapy through the corpse of Jeremy Corbyn's political career. But hey ho, it's up to us to to get the truth out there. That was James O'Brien. I suppose giving a lesson in how to be wrong and also how to be an asshole while you're being wrong. Everyone else is a weirdo. Everyone is strange people, these odd 
bizarre weirdos on Twitter who, when they hear David Lammy say Labour won't repeal a law, think Labour won't repeal a law. It's hardly conspiracy theory thinking, right? This is just people believing what they hear. James O'Brien, so deluded, even if David Lammy says they're not going to repeal it, no, no, my, my, my Liberal Labour Party, who I love, of course, he must be lying. He, he, he must have misspoke. No. When people say things, sometimes you should believe them. I mean, not often Keir Starmer, because we know he tends to break his pledges. But in any case, in this situation, there was no reason for David Lammy to lie, and he wasn't lying. Um, Barnaby, from one strange weirdo to another, um, what do you make of James O'Brien? It sounds like he doesn't like people like us very much. Well, he could sneer. James O'Brien could sneer for the Olympics. Um, he, he's, he's a liberal shock jock. And so that means he trades on outrage married to subservience, uh, a belief that everyone other than him is a fool, uh, but men in suits are generally exempted from that rule, a faith in a kind of professional class and elite who ought to run the show. And anyone who diverges from that sneering center is an object of mockery and derision. Now, that means that when those who appear to diverge from the sneering center are right wing populists uh, trading in racism, James O'Brien could sneer at them. But when they're left wingers who want a more equal and fair society and are skeptical of concentrated power, James O'Brien sneers at them, too. There's something interesting here about the emotional attachments, the loyalty uh, to power and hierarchy uh, uh, to, to those who are born to rule uh, so that everyone else uh, is an object of some contempt. That's why James O'Brien a few years ago tweeted that Donald Trump supporters and Jeremy Corbyn supporters, he thought, are pretty similar kinds of people. That is to say, those who want to build a wall to keep out immigrants um, uh, who think that Black Lives Matter is a conspiracy uh, and those who want to make a world freer and fairer for everyone uh, are identical to James O'Brien and to much of the liberal commentariat. Why? Because they both distrust concentrated uh, power, I think, that uh, Trump supporters uh, are misguided now to take it on, but they both think they distrust concentrated power. And that kind of concentrated power, James O'Brien speaks in the defense of. So on that clip, he was particularly sneering about Jeremy Corbyn. It's worth remembering that when Jeremy Corbyn was uh, was most popular, James O'Brien tried to jump on the bandwagon in 2016. He said there wasn't anything to disagree with in Jeremy Corbyn's policies. In 2017, he said we should stop treating Jeremy Corbyn as a pariah and start treating him as the alternative prime minister. Then a couple of years later, by 2019, he was saying he couldn't vote Labour and look a Jew in the eye. I mean, I wouldn't want James O'Brien looking me in the eye. I think I'd be quite scared by the encounter. Uh, he also said he couldn't vote Jeremy Corbyn and look an EU citizen in the eye, as if Jeremy Corbyn was responsible for Brexit, which he'd oppose, and which James O'Brien, of course, had helped to enable uh, by pushing that second referendum campaign, which made a hard Brexit, I think, much more likely and, uh, and, and eventually ended up helping to cost the Labour Party an election uh, by, by, by adopting an anti-Brexit position that lost them so much support. So he's not really a political guru. He's not really very politically wise in his strategies, but he's very, very full on the contempt. He's very good at contempt. Um, and I think that um, uh, that tells you all you need to know about a man who in 2022 said that his job was more exhausting than manual labor uh, because of the intellectual, the intellectual exertion that it involved uh, and gave in evidence for that claim the fact that he worked for two weeks on a building site in 1988 in Yorkshire. Uh, uh, he doesn't like very much people who do manual work. He thinks of himself as superior to everyone. Um, and that, I think, is the kind of base of a certain thin guardianista uh, politics that James O'Brien represents. It's real thin skin as well. I'm blocked by James O'Brien. I don't think I've ever been, you know, particularly rude to the guy. I'm not rude to anyone on Twitter. But then you, you, James O'Brien's blocked me, Dan Wooten's blocked me. All, all these people, that they're, they're very, very thin skin, snowflakes. You, you sort of point out when they're wrong. It's like, block, I'm not having that. And that's why they're able to dismiss you as weirdos because anyone who's, you know, 
if there's a if there's a reasonable and strong challenge, they just block you straight away. Um, I want to talk about the more material impact, or not impact, the more material issue, let's say, of repealing laws. This has been very much sort of a big issue which people have been debating on Twitter over the last couple of days because of this issue with the Public Order Act, which Labour have said they won't repeal. Also, more recently, they've said they wouldn't repeal the Illegal Immigration Act. Now, I suppose I don't know how I feel about this, and I sort of I, I tweeted, is it normal for opposition parties to say they will repeal laws before they get elected? Is that sort of something which often happens? Now, my response is, it seems like it doesn't happen that often. I did get some examples. So the Tories in 2010 did repeal Labour's law introducing ID cards. Um, they replaced um, the law which introduced ASBOs and replaced them with something else, I think civil public, civil public orders, something with a sort of similar name, but slightly different functioning. Labour repealed Section 28, but not until 2003. Obviously, they got elected in 1997, so they didn't put repealing Section 28 in their manifesto. They tried to repeal it in 2000. The Lords got rid of it. Um, sorry, the Lords blocked it, and then they had to wait until 2003 to get rid of it. So it doesn't seem like it is that common for politicians to say, well, we opposed it in Parliament at the time, so as soon as we get in, we will repeal it. And I want to go to a quote from um, a Labour spokesperson about the illegal immigration bill, soon probably to be in act. Um, they've, as I say, said they wouldn't repeal it. This is what a spokesperson said on that front. We have set our own comprehensive plan for how we would deal with the channel crossings and we'll be looking forward to bringing our own legislation through when we're in government. When you bring in new legislation, it often can involve sort of dealing with the predecessor legislation that there is. It doesn't automatically mean it is necessary to repeal existing legislation to introduce your own legislation. Um, Barnaby, where do you stand on, on this? Is it an outrage that Labour are saying they're not going to commit to repealing the Public Order Act and the Illegal Immigration Act? Or is it kind of just normal politics and they're waiting until they come forward with what their actual plan will be when it comes to policing or, or migration? Well, they could say right away that whatever their actual plan will be, it won't be a migration plan which involves saying that every single person who arrives in Britain fleeing persecution, won't be allowed to claim asylum here and will instead be put on a barge and then sent to Rwanda uh, if their asylum claim is successful, uh, where they will be subject to a state which has opened fire at refugees uh, asking simply for decent food. The Labour Party could say that's not going to be their immigration plan. They could say that whatever their plan will be for public order, it's not going to be a plan which leads to people turning up to peacefully protest the coronation of an unelected parasite, being put in a van and having all their signs confiscated by police under powers they've just been given, uh, which seem to prevent peaceful protest at an event that lots of us think is a waste of £100 million of public money when we should be spending it on nurses. Even saying that now means you can be carted off in a van and arrested as the director of Republic, one of Britain's softest protest groups, uh, was arrested under this legislation. It's not very hard for the Labour Party to say, whatever our plans will be, it won't be that. But there's a pattern here. Again, Starmer's doing what Tony Blair did, which is you vociferously oppose Tory legislation some of the time, other times you you just let it pass by. And then when you get into office, you accept that it's been made, it's been settled. This is what Tony Blair did, for example, with all of Thatcher's anti-trade union laws. We still have some of the most repressive trade union laws in the Western world in Britain. Um, so you just accept all of the work that the Tory party did to remake Britain, uh, to, to remake it in the interests of the rich and powerful and against those uh, who suffer and need protection and uh, who are exploited and oppressed. You, you, you bake all that in 
uh, you let it set in, to use whatever whatever phrase Starmer used, um, uh, and then you get on with doing work that doesn't fundamentally transform the country as much as the Conservatives have done. It's a tragic, suicidal form of politics because it means that the little things you do around the edges to change the country, uh, which can seem quite big at the time, New Labour did lots of cash transfers to people um, in tax credits and so on, uh, those things can be easily undone by a Tory party that gets to work remaking the basic legal infrastructure of the British state, and the Labour Party then just leaves that intact. Um, let's rush on to our final story. Mirror Group Newspapers is on trial in the High Court today. They're the publishers of the Daily Mirror, the Sunday Mirror, and the People Newspaper. In a case that's set to run for seven weeks, claimants have brought a series of allegations of phone hacking against the company. Now, one of those claimants is Prince Harry. He's set to give evidence in person next month. That'll make him the first senior royal in modern times to take the stand. Also part of the joint action are Girls Aloud singer Cheryl Cole, footballer and TV presenter Ian Wright, and the estate of George Michael, as well as a clutch of other celebrities. And in the crosshairs, none other than former editor Piers Morgan himself, with the claimants alleging that he must have known about any phone hacking that took place. He has always denied that he had any involvement. So what's the case about the claimants? Say that between 1996 and 2011, MGN got hold of private and even confidential information about them by using a variety of illegal methods. They say that journalists hacked into their voicemail accounts and listened to messages, and that they used private investigators to trick friends and family into handing over personal details, including medical records and financial information. Crucially, they also say there was no public interest in the journalists' alleged wrongdoing. Instead, they say it was, quote, wrongdoing for cynical commercial reasons. It's not Mirror Group's first time in court over phone hacking in 2015. They lost a case brought against them by the actress Sadie Frost and others. In his ruling back then, the judge said that phone hacking was, quote, widespread and frequent. The publisher was ordered to pay out £1.2 million in damages. This time around, the Mirror has admitted to, quote, some evidence of unlawful information gathering using private investigators in some cases, though they deny any phone hacking. And in court today, the group offered Harry something of an apology. Reuters report this. In documents presented at court as part of a phone hacking trial, Mirror Group Newspapers, which is owned by Reach, admitted on one occasion a private investigator had been engaged to unlawfully gather evidence about King Charles's younger son at a nightclub. It said it, quote, unreservedly apologises and accepts that Harry is entitled to appropriate compensation. Um, someone who is not in the mood to apologise is Piers Morgan. He gave this comment to ITV News. Hello. Are you prepared to apologise? All I'm going to say is I'm not going to take lectures on privacy invasion from Prince Harry, somebody who spent the last three years ruthlessly and cynically invading the royal family's privacy for vast commercial gain and told a pack of lies about them. So I suggest he gets out of court and apologises to his family for the disgraceful invasion of privacy that he's been perpetrating. The High Court heard today that there were legal practices That's all i got to say. Um, while you're at the helm. Are you willing to apologise? Apologise? I think, I think Prince Harry should be apologising for his disgraceful invasion of privacy of the royal family. And others, by the way. Thank you. Now, Barnaby, I have to say, this is one of those stories where I really don't have much skin in the game. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm team Prince Harry or, I mean, I'm definitely not team Piers Morgan. I, I don't know how much I care that, 
know, a private investigator went and saw Prince Harry in a nightclub. I suppose it is a bit distasteful. It does seem like there probably isn't much public interest there. I mean, can you can you manage to care about this story? Please do. <laughs> well, I think it's a sad and pathetic demise of a career uh, in the case of Piers Morgan. Um, uh, this is a man who was once fired uh, after consistently opposing the illegal invasion of Iraq, fired for printing photos that he believed were photos of British soldiers torturing people in Iraq. And then fast forward a few years and he's fired not for opposing the institutions of the British state or accusing them of torture and harassment overseas. No, he's fired for a singular, bizarre, anxious obsession with Meghan Markle and a defense, as you just heard it there, a passionate defense of uh, an institution of British society that doesn't need that much help, uh, the royal family. Um, I think Piers Morgan's a slightly interesting case then, as someone who's made a career in this age of culture wars and shock jocks, made a career by establishing himself very passionately in the camp of various political opinions that don't really matter to him very much at all. Piers Morgan now talks obsessively, for example, about trans people um, uh, and asks us uh, what, what biological criterion you need to have to be a woman. Um, I don't think he's really that concerned about women's spaces being violated because he's the same man who live on air when a woman woman dared to wear leather trousers uh, while presenting the weather, Laura Tobin, uh, he accused her of parading around and said she was doing it in order to provoke men to say wow. Um, uh, when she complained, he doubled down and refused to apologize. That's the same man who now sets himself up as a defense of women's spaces because he says trans people are attacking them. What's really going on there, of course, is he's identified a convenient moral panic, a convenient crusade that will up his ratings by shouting very angrily on TV every night about an issue uh, that doesn't really affect him very much at all. Uh, that's exactly what he does by having a go at Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, aligning with the most bigoted and reactionary segments of British society in order to keep his face on screen and ensure that Rupert Murdoch will continue paying him very handsomely. It's sad because he was once a journalist who opposed the war in Iraq, and he's now trying to pay the bills on that very nice house you just saw him entering by attacking some of the poorest and most vulnerable people in society, and then by ganging up on some very wealthy, privileged people, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, not in the name of saying that their wealth should be redistributed to millions and billions of people all over the world. No, in the name of defending uh, Charles and Camilla. I, I think really any of us could do better than that. Very well put. I'm, I'm glad you, you, you worked up that passion about this story while I was struggling. I suppose my, my main thoughts about this is, it, it, you know, in the story itself, it does seem like you shouldn't have newspapers who are hacking into people's voicemails um, to, to find out salacious information about their lifestyles, which isn't really in the public interest. At the same time, I do find it a bit disappointing that when it came to sort of the big crisis of the British press, it was about invading the privacy of, of, of celebrities instead of demonizing day after day every single minority group in this country. You know, I, I feel like that is the bigger crime of the British press. Um, Barnaby, it's been an absolute pleasure being joined by you this evening. Michael, it's been so long. I've, uh, I've come on the show hoping every time to see you uh, and I've been kept away from you. So I'm delighted that we can begin those big fights about migration and the police that we can continue another time and hopefully, you know, it can come to physical violence. <laughs> well, yes, uh, let's, let's, yeah, that, that, I'm sure people would love to watch that. Um, I'm going to go to the gym to try and give me a head start when it does come to fisticuffs with Barnaby Rain. Um, thank you everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow at 6pm for another live stream. For now, you've been watching Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.